Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast to give you a bit of a confidence boost if you're preparing to preach from the Old Testament, or if you just want to get more of a handle on these texts. I'm Tim McNinch, a PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University. And I'm Dr. Rachel Wren, an ordained Lutheran pastor and assistant professor of biblical studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. I've got quite the title, actually, now that I say it out loud. (laughs) It's about a paragraph. It really is. So our amazing new co-host, Rosie, is off this week, but she'll be back in a couple weeks. The first reading for Sunday, November 14th, is 1 Samuel 1, 4 through 20. Tim is up this week to guide us through the text, and if I'm not mistaken, this one is pretty close to your dissertation topic, right? Yes, as a matter of fact. Uh, I I focus on the Ark story that comes up a few chapters later, but I do give some attention to its context in 1 Samuel 1 through 8, and the lectionary text this week is the opening story of the book, Hannah's story and the the birth of Samuel. Oh, it's such a good one. It's so one of my favorites. (laughs) I know, I know, but it really is. Okay, so I can't wait to see what you do with it. What, where, where do you want to start? Well, I think uh, literary context is probably a good spot to jump in. Mm-hmm. The story is set at the end of the era of the judges. And in the canon, well, in the Jewish canon, it comes right after the book of Judges. In mm-hmm. the Christian canon, it comes right after the book of Ruth, which is also set in the time of the Judges. Fair. So we're kind of in that era. This, mm-hmm. is, this is before Israel's first kings. So leadership is kind of decentralized. Mm. And in the way the Bible tells it, people like Joshua and Eli and later Samuel, they were the agents of God's own leadership of the people. Mm. The really interesting thing, at least to me, about this story's literary context is that the book of Samuel, first and second Samuel in our Bibles, is really focused on the figure of David, Israel's second king, and the prototype of the ideal monarch. Hmm. The rest of the kings of Israel and Judah reign in David's shadow, and they're compared to him, usually unfavorably. So the surprising thing here is that the book doesn't start with the story of David's birth and his rise to power. In fact, the book doesn't describe David's birth at all. I'd never thought about that. Yeah, yeah, we don't get to him until the middle of Saul's reign. And we find David already as a young man shepherding near Bethlehem. Mm. Instead, this book opens with Hannah. Mm. Hannah is not a king, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) And she's not even the mother of a king. She is an infertile wife from a small town outside of nowhere. There's, there's this huge tension in the story between the center and the margin of Israelite society. And Hannah is about as far out on the margin as someone can get. That is so fascinating. I had never thought about the way the, the main focus of First and Second Samuel, it begins in a completely different space. I mean, Hannah's not like a widow or an orphan, but she is an infertile wife and a, an infertile wife who has a, a rival wife. So she's not even like central necessarily to her family unit. So uh, she she's in this position where, you know, having children was so central to feminine identity and she couldn't do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely. And, you know, that that still is unfortunately central to feminine identity in many social groups. Mm. And, and that reminds me to toss in a quick preaching pitfall right here at the beginning. It's very likely that preaching this text will touch a painful nerve mm. for some in your congregations who, like Hannah, are experiencing infertility. Yeah. 
or those who are struggling through a protracted adoption process, maybe, or in a related way for some who are single and don't want to be. Or even for some who identify with Samuel, who in this story was, quote unquote, lent to God, basically left on the doorstep of the Shiloh Shrine as a young boy and raised away from his parents. Mm. And really, this is just such a human personal story on so many levels that you as a preacher need to be aware that when you're preaching this text, you're really playing with fire. Yeah, I, I remember, I can't remember who it was, but one of my professors at seminary said, the whole Bible needs a great big fat trigger warning. <laughs> yes, yes. And this yeah. is one to be really, really aware of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, e even the, the end of the story in some ways could be triggering because Hannah is, spoiler alert, she's blessed at the ending with the, the healing of her infertility. Um, and she ends up having a bunch of kids and you don't want to leave struggling couples in your congregation feeling like there must be something wrong with them if God doesn't come through for them in the same way. Exactly. I mean, I think there's an incredibly hopeful message in this story, but that message isn't that whenever you pray, God makes your troubles disappear. Right. So don't take your sermon in that direction. I don't noted. think that's what this story is about. Right. Duly noted. So what is it about then in your mind? Well, I have some thoughts about that, but I want to make sure to include some other helpful nuggets here before I get to my preaching angle. Okay. Okay. So still a couple more preaching pitfalls, which, what do you want to touch on? Well, there are a couple little slip ups that I feel like I often hear from preachers dealing with this somewhat familiar text. Mm. Since it speaks of a temple, sometimes folks confuse the setting here with Jerusalem, but we're not in Jerusalem. No. Most of the story is set at Shiloh, a town in what would eventually become the northern kingdom of Israel. And this is a bit odd because later on, temples to God outside of Jerusalem would be a big no-no. <laughs> but here, it's just considered normal. In the same vein, Eli is the priest at Shiloh, but he's often spoken of in sermons as the quote-unquote high priest Eli, mm. which is also not quite right. In fact, between the lines of the story is probably a bit of competition among actual priestly lines in ancient Israel. Hmm. The Aaronic priests, that is descendants of Aaron. Not the and, ironic ones. Yeah, the Aaronic priests. <laughs> and the high priest that served at the temple in Jerusalem, who was also Aaronide, but particularly through the line of Zadok. Eventually, those became the only priests. And other lines, like Eli's line and other non-Zedekite Levites, got sidelined or given the boot or demoted, just as temples outside of Jerusalem became taboo eventually. Mm. So part of the way that Eli's story unfolds here probably participates in that uh, literary priestly rivalry. Mm. Of course, that's kind of a rabbit trail. It's not really sermon stuff, but it's good to know so that you don't accidentally drop Eli in downtown Jerusalem. Yeah, it is. And I think in some ways it also could, I mean, maybe not be sermon stuff, but at the same time could be just, if you can summarize it, might be a helpful way for folks to orient to where they are. Here we are between the conquering of the promised land and the establishment of a monarchy and a national temple in Jerusalem. This is really an in-between time story um, that's leaning towards those new developments. So um, definitely, yeah, definitely. No, I think that's helpful. 
Okay, left turn pivot here, uh, which has nothing to do with temples, really, but <laughs> Nazarites. We uh. we hear a little bit, of, we kind of pick up on that when John the Baptist is mentioned because his vows and his persona um, sort of mimic the Nazarite vows in some ways, but it's not really something familiar to us. So why don't you give him some context for being a Nazarite? Yeah, sure. Uh, so evidently Nazarites, and Samuel is described here as a Nazarite, uh, evidently they were Israelites who took a kind of special vow to refrain from certain luxuries, including alcohol and haircuts, <laughs> in order to devote themselves to some sort of divine service. Although the details of what that service is aren't really spelled out anywhere. I know. I'm always confused when I get to that part in Leviticus. It's like, yeah, but what are yeah. they? <laughs> yeah. There are some regulations about what Nazarites should and shouldn't do in number six. Uh, but actually, the only two individuals who are identified as Nazarites in the Bible are Samson and Samuel. Huh. And they're both kind of oddballs in that they're dedicated as lifelong Nazarites by their mothers before their birth. Mm. Whereas all the stuff in number six is about a kind of temporary Nazarite vow that's made by the persons themselves. Mm. So I guess I would say that I would encourage preachers not to make too big a deal out of the whole Nazarite thing. Mm. We just don't know much about it. And on top of all that, the word Nazarite itself isn't actually a part of the Hebrew tradition of 1 Samuel here. Mm. It's in our translations because the Greek version, the Septuagint has it. And maybe the Dead Sea Scrolls Hebrew version, though that's kind of iffy. But anyway, that, I'm getting into the weeds there. But that's what happens when you start talking about <laughs> dissertation stuff. Oh, I know the feeling. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to save you from yourself. Why don't you take us into <laughs> preaching angles here? Well, we're almost there, but there's, no. there's one more curiosity that I think is <laughs> worth mentioning here. Okay. Samuel's name. Oh, that is a good one. Go for it. Yeah. In Hebrew, it says that Hannah named the boy Shemuel, and she gives an etymology, a meaning to the name, saying, I'm calling him this because I requested him from God. What's curious about this is that the word requested, which pops up in this story several times, happens to be the same word in Hebrew as the word loaned, which also comes around a few times in this story, and in one Hebrew form is Shaul, Saul, the name of Israel's first king, whom Samuel will later anoint and mentor. Saul's name, Shaul, means requested one. And so there's probably some wordplay going on here in the naming of Samuel. But Samuel's own name, Shmuel, doesn't sound anything like Shaul, or at least not very much like it. So some scholars think that maybe this story was originally about the birth of Saul and only later adapted into Samuel's birth story. Huh. I'm not so sure about that theory myself. I think that more likely Samuel's name is meant to sound something like literally name of God, Shmuel, Shmuel, Samuel. And for Hannah in the story here, it's probably that connection to God's name that prompts her to call the boy Shmuel. I'm naming him this because it's from God that I've requested mm -hmm. him. How do you, how would you preach that? <laughs> I have no idea. I just think that's really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Let's throw out a line here. Give me a preaching angle too. <laughs> All right. Well, 
I think the central exegetical thing going on here is the contrast between the center of society and the margin of society. Mm. As I said earlier, Hannah's the poster child of marginality for all those reasons that we talked about. She's from the country, she's a woman, she's childless. Mm. It's worth noting in a great preaching point that Hannah's suffering is amplified by her experience of worship. Oh, wow. It's when her family travels to Shiloh to worship God year after year that her childlessness gets thrown in her face by her rival, another wife who's popping out babies like a rabbit, <laughs> by her husband whose consolation gifts only pour salt in her emotional wounds. Yeah, he doesn't handle that well. Yeah. By the liturgy of ritual meals at the temple uh, and feasting that goes along with that, that, that presumes that there's a caboodle of kids there. And by the priest who interprets Hannah's turmoil as drunken blubbering. Mm, mm -hmm. It's not hard to see how our own contexts of worship can also easily add injury to insult for marginalized members of our own worshiping communities. Yeah. How do our church structures and our social configurations, our own worship practices and, and sort of church cultures favor the quote-unquote average member of our churches and communicate to those on the margins that, well, God's less interested in you. Mm. It's no wonder that Hannah interprets her situation as a kind of divine abandonment. God mm. has forgotten her. And she goes to great lengths to try to get God's attention, even promising to give up her child if God would only just remember her. Yeah. Eli, on the other hand, is perched at the very center of his society. He's a man. He's a priest. And he's serving at a central shrine with sons of plenty and a potential priestly dynasty to follow him. Hmm. He sits so securely in his place of privilege that he can't recognize Hannah's need for what it is. Wow, that's a good preaching line. Can you, do you remember what you said? Can you say it again? Because that's gold. Yeah, because I have it written in my notes. That's not, I was trying to keep up the <laughs> magic here, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> He sits so securely in his place of privilege that he can't recognize Hannah's need for what it is. Bam. When I preach this text, uh, I address both the Hannahs and the Elis in the congregation. I assure the Hannahs, those on the margins for whatever reason, that God sees you. God has not forgotten you. God values you and desires to partner with you for the most important missions that God has for the world. Mm. Like Hannah, you can say no to the dismissive judgments of those who are at the center of privilege. Hmm. Which, another little Hebrew tidbit here, no is the very first word out of Hannah's mouth in the story. Oh, I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. Hannah ends up playing a central role in the history of God's people. The Elis, on the other hand, those with cultural and churchy privilege, should feel kind of unsettled by this story. Hmm. Eli's heritage is taken away and his security proves to be illusory. So how can those of us with great privilege attend to and give voice to those in the margins in a way that Eli didn't? Yeah. And though the lectionary doesn't include it this week, it comes up later and we'll get a chance to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Hannah's song in chapter two is the great poetic summary of this flip-flop, this reversal of fortunes. God lifts the needy from the ash heap and gives them purpose, dignity, and mission while the high and lofty in their own eyes get brought low. Hmm. 
So this is this is a great text. I love this one. And I love preaching it. There's so much richness to it. Mm. It's one of my favorites in the Bible too. Oh, that's so good. I just love that. And I I find it remarkable to to dwell on this for a minute, especially because as a as a Hebrew Bible scholar and professor, we often talk about how the Hebrew Bible was written by people of privilege, by men, for men, in pre- people of privilege. And so it is remarkable when you think about it that the Bible continually lifts up this idea of reversal. Uh, mm-hmm. It's almost like it's it's they're 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 pulling out the rug from under themselves in a really kind of neat way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I I think there's some historical reasons for that. Mm-hmm. That um, even though the the Bible was written by a, a kind of elite class overall and a male class predominantly, it was a people that on the global scale had experienced a lot of marginalization and yeah. displacement. And yeah. so a, a lot of the characters who are female or in other ways on the margins are used as kind of a figure for the, the nation's own yeah. sense of being pushed to the edge, even yeah. though it comes through the pens of male authors probably and in a way the the story is able to like transcend its own patriarchal limitations yeah um, because of those experiences and be applicable in in situations that maybe the original authors hadn't even thought of yeah no that's really delightful well folks i hope you take up this idea to to preach to these multiple groups that are in your congregation i think this is really powerful take up the take up the gauntlet and run with it do you run with a gauntlet take up i don't know baton uh, Yeah, that's what I was looking for. Take (laughs) up the baton and run with it. If you are looking for other batons to run with, I would suggest you head over to our website, firstreadingpodcast.com, or check us out on Facebook. We drop our new episodes every week, so you can always find us there. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and we would love to hear feedback, to hear what we're doing well and where you think we might improve. A big thanks to Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University for a grant that helps us do what we do. It helps us do what we do. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Happy preaching. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now.